It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. A team of 500 Union riders set off from Stevensburg, Virginia, in Culpeper County on February 28, 1864. They were an advance force, leading the way for a daring cavalry raid aimed at the heart of the Confederacy. Richmond itself. At their head was a handsome, capable young officer by the name of Ulrich Dahlgren. As the sun slowly set, the riders moved through the Virginia countryside as innocuously as is possible for 500 men on horseback. The weather was cold, but bearable, and as the audacious mission began, they were confident that fortune would be on their side, favoring the bold as it does. Dahlgren and his men planned to travel all the way around Richmond, crossing the James River to the west of the city and covertly approaching Richmond from the south. Their ultimate prize was Belle Isle, a POW camp situated on an island in the river just below the city. It was a ride of over 80 miles, and they had about two days to do it. At the same time, another, larger contingent of Union cavalry would approach Richmond from the north. The larger force would take a shorter, more direct route and would therefore have to cover less distance than Dahlgren's men. Their objective was to breach the Confederate defenses and, at all times during the mission, destroy railroads, bridges, warehouses, basically anything of value in sustaining the city and supporting the Army of Northern Virginia. It was an incredibly ambitious plan, particularly for Ulrich Dahlgren's advance team, traveling through enemy territory, penetrating Richmond's defenses, and if things went well, freeing potentially thousands of Union soldiers held at Belle Isle. It goes without saying that an incursion into Richmond was bound to stir up some sort of Confederate response, whether it be regular soldiers, militia, or armed citizens. But they hoped the jailbreak and synchronized, multi-directional raid would create enough chaos to facilitate an escape. Notwithstanding the obviously high level of risk, the Yankee troopers had a few things going for them. First, according to Union intelligence, and they did have an excellent network of informants in and around Richmond, the rebel capital's battlements were conspicuously undermanned and therefore potentially vulnerable. By early 1864, the Confederate army was suffering from an acute shortage of manpower, and most able-bodied men of fighting age were with General Lee, rather than defending the capital. The opposing armies were in winter camp on opposite sides of the Rapidon River, sufficiently distant to prevent last-minute reinforcement of Richmond. And second, the Union riders would have the invaluable element of surprise. Not only had the war slowed down for the winter, in general, but a cavalry raid directly into Richmond straight into the jaws of the beast, so to speak, was a dangerous enough proposition to be completely unexpected. The idea was, this plan seems so risky that there's no way the rebels will be prepared for it. 
That plan for the winter 1863-1864 raid on Richmond was the brainchild of Brigadier General Judson Kilpatrick, who had, upon learning of Richmond's apparent vulnerability, seen a potential opportunity, both at a military and personal level. Kilpatrick, in command of the 3rd Cavalry Division, had drawn up a proposal for a combined raid on Richmond and jailbreak from the nearby Belle Isle prisoner camp. When Kilpatrick initially presented the plan to his direct superior, General Alfred Pleasanton, he had been shot down. Pleasanton, whose cavalry experience went all the way back to his 1844 graduation from West Point, uh, after which he accepted a commission in the 1st U.S. Dragoons, uh, Pleasanton simply didn't think the plan was likely to succeed. There was too much risk without a commensurate chance for reward. But Kilpatrick didn't give up. He openly discussed the proposal with anyone who would listen, hoping that the idea would reach more receptive, higher-ranking ears. And it worked, earning him an audience in Washington after Secretary of War Edwin Stanton heard about his proposal. After a meeting with both Stanton and President Lincoln, Kilpatrick received the approval he needed from a source higher than Pleasanton. Stanton, in particular, was enthusiastic about the raid, and directed the army to allocate 4,000 troopers to accompany Kilpatrick. The kicker for Lincoln was that the raid would present a potential opportunity for more widespread publication of the Proclamation for Amnesty and Reconstruction that Lincoln had issued on December 8, 1863. To serve as Kilpatrick's right-hand man for the assault on Richmond, he recruited a talented young officer by the name of Ulrich Dahlgren who enthusiastically joined the effort. During the middle part of February 1864, Kilpatrick and Dahlgren together ironed out the details of what both viewed as an excellent opportunity to both dish out some damage to the rebels and also advance their careers and maybe even get some good press. Welcome to Portraits of Blue and Gray. Today's episode is about the 1864 Union raid on Richmond and the so-called Dahlgren affair that followed. I'm especially excited for this episode because I think it's uh, an engaging story and it also has a certain element of mystery. For listeners who are unfamiliar with this story, we uh, deliberately avoided any plot spoilers in the intro. One other thing I wanted to mention going in is that um, we made what I guess was an editorial decision to kind of present Ulrich Dahlgren as a, a sympathetic figure, um, sort of help the narrative flow. But you should be aware that uh, he's also sometimes presented as a, a sort of uh, villainous sort of character, uh, depending on who you ask and, and which version of the story you're reading. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, you can reach us at blueandgraypodcast at gmail.com, spelling gray with an E. Thanks as always for listening. Hope you enjoy our take on the Dahlgren Affair. In overall command of the February 1864 Union raid on Richmond was General Judson Kilpatrick. Kilpatrick was a mid-20s brigadier general from New Jersey, fresh out of West Point, class of 1861, when the war started. 
Kilpatrick began the war slowly after sustaining a leg wound in June of 1861, but ascended through the ranks pretty quickly after a strong performance at 2nd Manassas. Uh, HistoryNet provides a good, broad description of Kilpatrick, an edited version of which uh, will quote, quote, Physically, he looked anything but the romantic concept of the cavalryman. He was bantam-sized, with a lantern jaw, pale eyes, and frizzy red side whiskers. But being vain, he dressed with a certain flair. He wore carefully tailored uniforms, great boots, and a black felt hat tilted at a rakish angle. A staff officer once remarked that it was hard to look at him without laughing. But Kilpatrick impressed others with his restless energy, for he seemed always to be in a hurry to accomplish some great deed. End quote. Uh, Kilpatrick was also a tireless self-promoter who enjoyed delivering grand inspirational addresses to his men. Uh, he was one of those guys who people either loved or hated. And uh, returning to History Net's uh, brief bio, quote, He was either a heroic and noble soldier, or, as one federal officer wrote, a frothy braggart without brains. And in an army rife with gamblers and drinkers, Kilpatrick touched neither playing cards nor bottle, but he lacked integrity and cherished certain other vices, end quote. Uh, those certain other vices the uh, History Net writer references, but tactfully declines to identify, uh, included, most notably, a distinct fondness for the company of prostitutes. Now, Judson Kilpatrick had two things that really worked in his favor. First, he was a capable political maneuverer. We like to think of the army as um, somewhat apolitical, and historically that, that's more or less been accurate, but uh, the army has its own internal politics, and Judson Kilpatrick did a good job of getting close to the right people and advocating for his own advancement. Case in point, going over Alfred Pleasanton's head to get the planned raid approved uh, probably didn't win him any points with Pleasanton. But if it went well, Edwin Stanton's patronage would be much more valuable. And the other thing is that he was very aggressive on the battlefield. Among the military's civilian leadership, that was a highly sought-after attribute. Lincoln and Stanton and some of the Republican senators who uh, pulled some weight wanted officers who were willing to take the fight to the Confederates. And Kilpatrick generally fit the bill. His admirers in the Army viewed uh, this trait as courage, a natural predilection for heroism. Uh, among some other Yankee soldiers, though, he had a reputation for being too aggressive, uh, to the point of recklessness. He earned the nickname Kill Cavalry for his uh, propensity for sending the men under his command into dangerous, occasionally foolish situations that all too often resulted in heavy, some thought unnecessary casualties. We mentioned recently that old-school cavalry charges had become a more or less ineffective tactic by the time of the Civil War. Judson Kilpatrick liked to order them every now and again just to make sure that they still didn't work. Uh, on the other hand, some of Kilpatrick's detractors also argue that he was too quick to disengage when the fighting got hot. So the critique on Kilpatrick is overly eager to commit to battle, but also overly eager to withdraw. Uh, later on, General Sherman would size up Kilpatrick's relative strengths and weaknesses um, as a commander, 
and decide in favor of the strengths, saying, quote, I know that Kilpatrick is a hell of a damned fool, but I want just that sort of man to command my cavalry on this expedition, end quote. Now, I'm not sure just how important of a fact this is, but uh, I'll go ahead and mention it since it seems to be snuck into a, a lot of the more recent articles that you come across mentioning Judson Kilpatrick. His granddaughter, Gloria, who I'm assuming was a uh, flapper because she was a big hit on the New York social scene in the 1920s, Gloria uh, married into the famously wealthy Vanderbilt family. And through that line, Judson Kilpatrick is a direct ancestor of TV's Anderson Cooper. The funny thing, though, is if I were to show you pictures of the two central characters in this story and tell you that one of the two was the great-great-grandfather of TV's Anderson Cooper, Kilpatrick's probably not the guy you'd pick, unless you had already heard this story. At least I wouldn't have, because the other guy uh, looks much more similar to him, in my opinion. Uh, That other guy, the number two man on the raid, was Ulrich Dahlgren, the son of Union Rear Admiral John Dahlgren, founder of the Ordnance Department within the U.S. Navy, and inventor of the Dahlgren gun, an artillery piece that was a a very popular armament uh, aboard naval ships during the Civil War era. Uh, During the war, the elder Dahlgren was responsible for, among other things, implementing the blockade around Georgia and the Carolinas. The younger Dahlgren, Ulrich, was a 21-year-old aspiring lawyer when the war started. He started off in the Navy, switched to an artillery company, and then received an officer's commission in the Union Army uh, directly from Secretary of War Edwin Stanton after impressing President Lincoln during a meeting between Lincoln and Rear Admiral Dahlgren, at which uh, Ulrich sat in. Ulrich had worked as a staff officer under John C. Fremont, Franz Siegel, Joe Hooker, and then George Meade, so he'd served under some pretty high-profile commanders and had thus far proved himself a, a bright and capable young officer. In contrast to Kilpatrick, Dahlgren was a good-looking, polished guy, a gentleman of his age, and he was generally well-liked and respected by uh, pretty much all the men he commanded and, and by the men under whose command he served. Captain Dahlgren made a name for himself at Fredericksburg, where he and around 60 men um, under his command captured the town for a few hours after surprising the Confederates who were in occupation. It didn't ultimately make much difference in the outcome of the Battle of Fredericksburg, but he impressed his fellow officers and soldiers with uh, quick thinking and courage under fire. Then, during the Gettysburg Campaign, after the battle itself, on the way back through Maryland, Dahlgren took a musket ball to the foot and ended up losing his leg below the knee. Notwithstanding the missing lower leg, Brigadier General Kilpatrick handpicked newly promoted Colonel Ulrich Dahlgren for the upcoming raid on Richmond. And Dahlgren actually lobbied for permission to go along. Uh, Kilpatrick was looking for someone who had a track record for ingenuity, bravery, and leadership under pressure. Uh, Someone who could think on his feet. And by all accounts, Ulrich Dahlgren had the right qualifications. And he also demonstrated his grit through his willingness to get uh, right back in the saddle without delay when, given his current condition, uh, missing his lower leg as he was, 
No one would have faulted him for taking it easy and maybe sticking to some administrative work for at least a little while. From Kilpatrick's perspective, and this is something he almost certainly would have taken into account, it also didn't hurt that the Dahlgren family had valuable connections in Washington due to John Dahlgren's high-ranking position in the Navy. Uh, Incidentally, uh, Ulrich Dahlgren was born in Pennsylvania and lived most of his life in Delaware, like the president, right? And as President Biden helpfully reminded us during the uh, 2008 campaign, Delaware was a slave state. And there were some Delawareans, uh, probably about 2,000, who opted to fight for the Confederacy. So not as many as the 25,000 or so from uh, neighboring Maryland, but not an insignificant number. But that doesn't seem to have been uh, something that either Dahlgren, John, or Ulrich remotely entertained. By all accounts, they were both ardent Unionists. However, there was another member of the Dahlgren family who served in a prominent position during the Civil War. Charles Dahlgren, who was the brother of Rear Admiral John and the uncle of Colonel Ulrich, served as a brigadier general in the Confederate Army, having moved to Mississippi and purchased a plantation before the war. It really was a brother-versus-brother conflict. Part of the reason that the raid on Richmond had been approved, uh, even though everyone knew going in that it was going to be a very dangerous operation, was that, if successful, it would simultaneously advance multiple important military and political objectives. The 4,000 men accompanying Kilpatrick and Dahlgren certainly uh, wouldn't be enough to capture Richmond, and that wasn't on the agenda. Instead, they planned more of a hit-and-run slash at the Confederate capital. Along the way, there would be the kind of standard cavalry raid goal of destroying enemy infrastructure. Any bridges or railways that they could take out in the vicinity of Richmond would be valuable. Uh, Remember, the opposing armies are in their winter camps for the year at this point. On the northern side, a steady stream of men and supplies were fortifying the Army of the Potomac's already formidable advantages. On the opposite bank, Robert E. Lee was in a continual struggle to keep his men fed. Supply shortages were already leading to high levels of desertion. Any damage the Union raiders could inflict upon the already taxed rebel supply lines, the uh, routes into Richmond from western Virginia, and the lifeline between Richmond and the Army of Northern Virginia, would make Lee's job even harder. And that would further increase the Army of the Potomac's chances of success in the upcoming spring offensive that Grant and Sherman were planning. Now, there was also the psychological goal of undermining the morale of the Southern public. By successfully attacking Richmond, even if it was only a brief assault, the Union cavalry would demonstrate the futility of the rebel war effort. Average Southerners would see that if the Confederate military couldn't even protect its own capital, then there wasn't really any hope for an eventual military victory. And along similar lines, while in Richmond, Kilpatrick and Dahlgren would publicize Lincoln's Amnesty Proclamation. Uh, The proclamation offered a pardon and restoration of property rights to repentant Confederates who swore allegiance to the Union and accepted emancipation. Uh, During the raid, Union cavalry could distribute copies uh, in and around the Richmond area, 
The hope was that the combination of seeing Yankee soldiers running wild in Richmond, while also learning that President Lincoln had uh, put a pretty generous amnesty offer out on the table, uh, might persuade more Virginians to cut their losses and return to the forgiving arms of Uncle Sam. Another more personal objective that we can't overlook, because it is important, is that Kilpatrick viewed the raid as an excellent opportunity for career advancement. He was quite open about wanting to use a successful military career as a springboard for a future political career. Kilpatrick had his sights set on a run for governor of New Jersey after the war, uh, which he calculated would open up an eventual path to the presidency. Uh, This dude did not lack for ambition. However, during the Gettysburg campaign, Kilpatrick had ordered what was widely viewed as a foolish cavalry charge that led to the unnecessary deaths of numerous Union troopers and also dealt noticeable damage to his reputation as an officer. The brigade commander that Kilpatrick ordered to lead the charge had had objected, but um, after Kilpatrick suggested that the man's uh, objections were rooted in a lack of you know, guts, the poor fellow reluctantly set off to his death, reportedly saying as he left, If you order the charge, I will lead it, but you must accept the responsibility. The bad results had damaged Kilpatrick's reputation, and he viewed an attack on Richmond as the kind of high-profile engagement that could get a man's name in the papers, in a good way, restoring uh, his status and maybe even winning over future voters, not to mention a promotion to major general. And another objective of the raid, and officially this is the single most important objective, was that the Union Raiders would be attempting to secure the release of federal prisoners being held at the Belle Isle prison camp near Richmond. By this point in the war, the situation in the POW camps was unequivocally dismal. So a mission intended to liberate Yankee prisoners was something that federal soldiers, uh, certainly including Kilpatrick and Dahlgren, took very seriously and were very eager to contribute to. Early on in the war, prisoner exchanges had been carried out more or less freely. Union political leadership preferred not to enter into any any formal exchange agreement uh, because uh, that could be interpreted as a recognition of Confederate sovereignty and legitimacy as, as a belligerent nation. But public opinion demanded prisoner exchanges. The New York Times howled, complete with exclamation point. And um, those were doled out a little less freely back then. Quote, Our government must change its policy. Our prisoners must be exchanged, end quote. So Union leadership succumbed to popular outcry, and in July 1862, military leaders on both sides arrived at a formal cartel governing POW exchanges. Not long after the agreement was reached, the Confederates began sending captured Union soldiers home, Uh, not wanting to take on the responsibility and the drain on resources of feeding and housing the prisoners. It was basically an honor system. You've been captured, so you're out of the fighting until you get formally exchanged. Almost like playing a game of capture the flag or something in the backyard. I got you. You're out. Now, paroled Union prisoners didn't think uh, that was such a bad arrangement. They got to hang out at home and see their families for a little while, but... In response, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton issued an order requiring paroled prisoners to report to 
parole camps in uh, Union territory where they would be reorganized and prepared for duty when the formal exchange came. The Union soldiers preferred the original setup, and some refused to do anything military-related. Their honor was at stake, after all. They had sworn to wait it out until formally exchanged. Now, conditions in the Union parole camps were often not all that great. Things like lice and dysentery were, were an issue. Uh, though they were definitely not as bad as Confederate POW camps. But discontent and flagging discipline at the parole camps became a major area of concern in Washington. But that issue ended up becoming more or less moot, because the POW exchange agreement came to an end in the spring of 1863. Lincoln's decision to enlist black soldiers into the Union Army uh, peeved Southern politicians, And in May 1863, the Confederate legislature passed a resolution stating that captured black soldiers would not be subject to exchange and could instead be enslaved by state governments. Uh, White officers commanding black soldiers would be charged with inciting servile insurrection, a crime punishable by the death penalty. Uh, In response, President Lincoln and Secretary Stanton ordered that prisoner exchanges be ceased altogether which they effectively were. Now, it's tempting to interpret this as a principled stand against discrimination. And there was certainly a feeling that if you were going to enlist men to fight for your cause, you had a duty to look after them. But there's also a reason to think that union leaders were were kind of looking for a reason to end the exchanges because they were working out better for the South than the North. The Union Army had considerably more manpower, so getting one soldier back was a lot less valuable, proportionally. Uh, Not to mention, maintaining POW camps would burden Confederate resources that were already near the breaking point. Feeding Confederate prisoners wasn't as onerous for the Union government. Shelby Foote describes the decision to halt prisoner exchanges like this, quote, Whatever its shortcomings, from a humanitarian point of view, militarily the decision was a sound one. Not only did a man-for-man exchange favor the side on which one man was a larger fraction of the whole, but in this case, there was also the added dividend that, in ending such a disadvantageous arrangement, the Union would be burdening its food-poor adversary with a mounting number of hungry mouths to feed. End quote. What you typically see as Exhibit A in support of this interpretation is a statement from General Grant, who steadfastly opposed resumption of prisoner exchanges and had a habit of saying out loud the kinds of things that shrewd politicians would probably have left unsaid. Quoting Grant, quote, It is hard on our men held in southern prisons not to exchange them, but it is humanity to those left in the ranks to fight our battles. Every man we hold, when released on parole or otherwise, becomes an active soldier against us at once, either directly or indirectly. If we commence a system of exchange which liberates all prisoners taken, we will have to fight on until the whole South is exterminated. If we hold those caught, they amount to no more than dead men. At this particular time, to release all rebel prisoners would ensure Sherman's defeat, and would compromise our safety here, end quote. Predictably, the decision didn't go over well with uh, everyday Union soldiers. 
Grant had yet to win over the average infantryman in the Eastern Theater, uh, some of whom were still clinging to fond feelings for George McClellan, um, whose abundance of concern for the condition of men under his command probably impeded his effectiveness as a commander. Quoting Shelby Foote again, quote, Just how much prolonged misery this was likely to cause, Grant's own troops knew all too well, either from having been captured in the days when they could be exchanged, or from awareness of what the daily food allowance consisted in the camps across the river. It was hard enough on the rebels whose stomachs had long since shrunk to fit their rations, but for men accustomed to eating all that they could hold, such depredation would amount to downright torture. Moreover, the prospect was further clouded by the knowledge that it had been devised by their own commander. End quote. Confederate leadership joined Union soldiers in protesting the end of exchanges, as did the Northern press. The uh, heat Lincoln was catching for the prisoner conditions was uh, part of what convinced him to approve the Richmond raid. The Southerners accused Union leaders of doing uh, pretty much what Grant uh, acknowledged they were doing, exposing POWs to misery to gain a strategic advantage. Uh, Jefferson Davis paroled a delegation of POWs from, from Andersonville to visit the Lincoln administration in Washington and plead for a resumption of exchanges, but they were unable to gain an audience. A Pennsylvania cavalryman held at Andersonville when the delegation was, was sent later recalled, quote, Nobody can tell, unless it be a shipwrecked and famished mariner who sees a vessel approaching and then passing on without rendering the required aid, what fond hopes were raised, and how hopes sickened into despair, waiting for the answer that never came. End quote. Uh, ordinary people wrote a lot more uh, poetically back then. Anyway, after the war, Grant testified that the poor condition of the Confederate POW camps, though it troubled him, had actually been a factor that weighed against exchanges, the idea being that released rebel prisoners were typically ready to fight, but Union POWs needed at least a couple months of rehabilitation. Quoting Grant, quote, I did not deem it advisable or just to reinforce the enemy with thirty or 40,000 disciplined troops at that time. An immediate resumption of exchanges would have had that effect, without giving us corresponding benefits. The suffering said to exist among our prisoners south was a powerful argument against the course pursued, and I so felt it. End quote. We should point out, as a, uh, a point of clarification, that Grant is often inaccurately credited or blamed for ending the prisoner exchanges. The truth, though, is, is uh, when the decision was initially made, Grant was still out west, and he didn't have any say in it. However, after Grant was put in command in the east, he opposed um, recommencing the exchanges. Quoting the National Park Service from an article about the Andersonville National Historic Site, quote, In the late summer of 1864, a year after the Dix Hill Cartel, uh, Dix Hill is the name of the original exchange agreement. A year after the Dix Hill cartel was suspended, Confederate officials approached Union General Benjamin Butler about resuming the cartel and exchanges, including black prisoners. Uh, so basically, the, the Confederates were saying, OK, fine, we'll exchange black POWs, too. Let's go back to how we were doing it before. Uh, returning to the uh, NPS article, Butler, the Union Commissioner of Exchange, 
contacted Grant for guidance on the issue. Grant responded on August 18, 1864, with his now-famous statement, end quote. The now-famous statement is, is the one that we just quoted a moment ago about how exchanges were um, disadvantageous strategically. Now, the NPS calls it a myth that Grant stopped prisoner exchanges. Uh, I think myth probably goes too far. Um, for Grant, it was about the timing and precisely how the terms of exchange would impact the strategic picture. Later on, in early 1865, when the strategic picture had changed, Grant uh, relented to renewed exchanges. So that's enough about the politics behind prisoner exchanges. But to uh, you know, kind of drive home the point about uh, how big of a deal this was to ordinary soldiers, we need to understand just how wretched these camps really were when Judson Kilpatrick and Ulrich Dahlgren were planning their raid. Before, uh, before the exchanges had ended, the conditions in the prisoner camps weren't, weren't exactly good. But when the exchanges ended in, in the spring of 1863 and the prisoner populations started to balloon, you can fairly say that the, that the situation became downright horrific. Union camps holding Confederates like Alton in Illinois or Point Lookout in Maryland were bad. Uh, disease was rampant. Smallpox outbreaks would regularly kill hundreds of men, and all of the camps were ridiculously overcrowded, uh, usually at least more than double the intended capacity. Elmira Prison in New York, nicknamed Hellmira, was one of the worst. Elmira was constructed for a maximum of 4,000 inmates, but held more than 12,000 rebel POWs. About one out of every four prisoners who entered Elmira died before making it out. And over 4,000 men died at Camp Douglas in Illinois, where an already bad situation was worsened by corrupt management. So the, the Union camps were bad, but the situation in Confederate camps holding Union prisoners was uh, far worse for a simple reason. Most rebel POWs were at least receiving somewhat regular rations. The Confederacy couldn't even keep its army fed. So supply lines were near the breaking point and getting less reliable by the day. There were bread riots in the capital, for example. So feeding enemy prisoners became a low priority. Essentially, all the problems present in northern camps were present in the southern camps. But in addition to rampant disease and filthy conditions, captured Union soldiers also faced severe malnourishment and even starvation. One Union soldier remembered of his entrance into the notorious Camp Sumter in Georgia, better known as Andersonville Prison, quote, As we entered the place, a spectacle met our eyes that almost froze our blood with horror. Before us were forms that had once been active and erect, stalwart men, now nothing but mere walking skeletons covered with filth and vermin. Many of our men exclaimed with earnestness, Can this be hell? End quote. A Union official who observed the conditions at Belle Isle, the target of Kilpatrick's raid, wrote of the camp's inmates, quote, In a semi-state of nudity, laboring under such diseases as chronic diarrhea, scurvy, frostbite, general debility caused by starvation, neglect, and exposure, many of them had partially lost their reason, forgetting even the date of their capture, and everything connected with their antecedent history— 
They were filthy in the extreme, covered in vermin. Nearly all were extremely emaciated, so much so that they had to be cared for even like infants, end quote. A uh, New York infantryman who spent time at, at more than one uh, prison camp testified after the war. And uh, this is a long quote, but it, it really gives you a, the, the feel for the ugliness of the camps. Quote, I have seen 150 bodies waiting passage to the dead house to be buried with those who died in hospital. The average of deaths through the earlier months was 30 a day. At the time I left... The average was over 130, and one day the record showed 146. The proportion of deaths from starvation, not including those consequent on the diseases originating in the character and limited supply of food, such as diarrhea, dysentery, and scurvy, I cannot state. But to the best of my knowledge, information, and belief, there were scores every month. We could at any time point out many for whom such a fate was inevitable as they lay or feebly walked, mere skeletons. For a man to find on waking that his comrade by his side was dead was an occurrence too common to be noted. I have seen death in almost all the forms of the hospital and battlefield, but the daily scenes in Camp Sumter exceeded in the extremity of misery all my previous experience. Sometimes our men were rewarded for the work, and he's referring to the, the work of burying the dead, with a few sticks of firewood, and I have known them to quarrel over a dead body for the job. It is a melancholy and mortifying fact that some of our trials came from our own men. At Belle Isle and Andersonville, there were among us a gang of desperate men, ready to prey on their fellows. Not only thefts and robberies, but even murders were committed. Affairs became so serious at Camp Sumter that an appeal was made to General Winder, that's the uh, Confederate warden, who authorized an arrest and trial by a criminal court. Eighty-six were arrested, and six were hung, besides others who were severely punished. These proceedings affected a marked change for the better. End quote. Now, it was no secret that the Confederate camps were bad. Uh, it was well known among Union soldiers, and that's a big part of why ending the prisoner exchanges was so unpopular. But in early February 1864, over 100 Union soldiers escaped from Libby Prison near Richmond, and a little over half of them uh, made their way back to Union lines. And once there, they told stories about what they had experienced and the details of just how much suffering the captured soldiers were undergoing spread throughout the Union Army. Federal soldiers were outraged. The goal of liberating captured brothers-in-arms became a common rallying cry, just as Kilpatrick and Dahlgren were planning their raid on the Belle Isle prison. And there was no shortage of Union soldiers willing to join in an undeniably risky mission that had a goal they considered more worthwhile than just about anything else they might be asked to do. Kilpatrick and Dahlgren's plan for the raid on Richmond involved what you might describe as a pincer movement, uh, directed at the rebel capital. Kilpatrick would personally command the bulk of the force. He led around 3,500 troopers, approaching Richmond from the north. Ulrich Dahlgren would be in command of 500 additional horsemen who would circle around and hit Richmond from the south after crossing the James River along the way. And we also have a cameo appearance from General George Custer. 
who would lead a diversionary force west towards Charlottesville in hopes of drawing away any Confederate cavalry from the vicinity of Richmond. Dahlgren had a monumentally difficult task, since he'd have to travel further than Kilpatrick and would at times be groping his way around Richmond in the dark. But Dahlgren would be relying on a guide familiar with the area to show him the way. Uh, Most critically, his guide would lead Dahlgren and his men to a passable ford uh, that they could use to get across the James River. The crossing was necessary uh, to allow them to get to the south of Richmond, where they could get access to the Belle Isle prison. The guide's name was Martin Robinson. He was a black resident of the Richmond area who uh, knew the geography well and had agreed to help out the Yankee cause. The Yankee Raiders embarked on the evening of February 28th, leaving from Stevensburg, Virginia. In total, Dahlgren's men expected to ride about 80 miles. The plan called for both teams to hit Richmond more or less simultaneously on March 1st. 1864 was a leap year, so Dahlgren would have the remainder of February 28th and February 29th for travel, allowing his men to enter Richmond on March 1st. Initially, things went fairly well. Both detachments started off on schedule and were able to take out some railroad tracks and other infrastructure and distribute copies of Lincoln's Amnesty Proclamation. Dahlgren's men destroyed some smaller boats on canals leading to the James and paid a visit to the farm of Confederate Secretary of War James Seddon, along with some other buildings in the vicinity. Unfortunately, though, it was a lot more difficult to predict the weather in 1864, So uh, you can't fault Kilpatrick and Dahlgren too much for the conditions they ran into, Uh, but they picked a bad time for the raid from a uh, meteorological perspective. Uh, An ugly winter storm blew in, bringing wet snow and sleet, and that made the ride very uncomfortable and slowed the men down. The night was dark as Dahlgren's raiders drew close to Richmond, and the weather was bad, And after a few hours' travel, moving slower than they otherwise would have, the Yankee Raiders finally arrived at the ford that they planned to use to get across the James. Except there was a problem. The destination where the Raiders had arrived didn't appear to be a crossable ford at all. In fact, uh, after a uh, closer inspection of the site, Dahlgren determined that it was indeed impassable. Now, in retrospect, the issue might have been that the bad weather that slowed down the Union Cavaliers had also resulted in high water on the James River. And because the river was up, a spot that uh, might otherwise have been a serviceable ford was rendered unusable. Regardless, Dahlgren realizes that he has a serious problem. He's running behind due to the weather, and his and Kilpatrick's plan is built around his advanced teams getting across the James River and to the south of Richmond. Otherwise, they'd never get to Belle Isle, which was a major purpose of the raid to begin with. So it's hard to say for sure whether the river was too swollen or maybe they had, maybe they had missed the right spot in the dark. But uh, what we do know is that Ulrich Dahlgren did not interpret the situation as mere bad luck brought about by a capricious Mother Nature. His conclusion was that he and his men had been double-crossed by a deceitful guide. Now, that's, uh, you know, not an entirely preposterous idea. It wouldn't have been the first time that a a purported guide intentionally led someone astray. 
if I recall correctly, uh, Crassus ran into that sort of problem during his uh, campaign into Parthia. And something similar occurs in Last of the Mohicans. We don't know with certainty whether Martin Robinson, the guy navigating the Yankees through the outskirts of Richmond, was purposefully trying to sabotage the Union raid to help the Southern cause, or if he was uh, just the victim of unfortunate circumstances. But with that said, I'll let a New York cavalryman describe how it turned out. Martin Robinson had deceived us. No ford existed at this point, nor any means of crossing the river. He then stated that the ford was three miles below. This was obviously false, as the river was evidently navigable to and above this place, as we saw a sloop going down the river. He came into our lines from Richmond, and he was born and had always belonged in the immediate vicinity of Dover Mills, was very shrewd and intelligent, and it would seem impossible that he should not know that no ford existed in the neighborhood, where he had seen vessels daily passing. Colonel Dahlgren had warned him that if detected acting in bad faith or lying, we would surely hang him, and after we left Dover Mills and had gone down the river so far as to render further prevarication unavailing, the colonel charged him with betraying us, destroying the whole design of the expedition, and hazarding the lives of everyone engaged in it, and told him that he should be hung in conformity with the terms of his service. Martin Robinson became greatly alarmed, stated confusedly that he was mistaken, thought we intended to cross the river in boats, and finally said that he had done wrong, was sorry, etc. The colonel ordered him to be hung. A halter strap was used for that purpose, and we left the miserable wretch dangling by the roadside. End quote. So that's a, a pretty disturbing image. Uh, another first-person account from a Lieutenant Bartley of the U.S. Signal Corps uh, disagrees as to how Martin Robinson joined the mission as a guide and uh, failed to locate the ford. Bartley's report states, quote, There was no ford at that place at all, but a steam ferry with a boat at the opposite side of the river and no ford short of 20 miles up the river, end quote. So if Bartley is accurate, maybe um, Robinson confused the ferry with a ford. Uh, returning to Bartley, quote, This is the most mysterious case I have ever heard of. This man came down from Washington City, sent by Stanton, who was a personal friend of the colonel. He made a bargain with Kilpatrick and Dahlgren to take them to a ford at Dover Mills and take them over when his services would cease. And in case of any mistake or treachery on his part, he was to be hanged. And if it came out all right, he was to receive a large sum of money. End quote. So one witness says Robinson was a, a local who wandered to the Union lines, and another says he was sent from D.C. by Edwin Stanton. In his version, Lieutenant Bartley also maintains that Robinson stoically accepted his fate, while the other Union witness says he was greatly alarmed. And uh, you would also think that Union intelligence, or engineers, would know in advance how far upriver that James was navigable. That is a pretty important bit of information, especially when you consider that capturing Richmond had been a major goal of the Union war effort for, for over two years by that point. So the whole episode just doesn't seem to add up. But regardless, for Dahlgren and his men, 
The failure to cross the James, uh, along with the hanging of Martin Robinson, set off a disastrous chain reaction. Uh, The situation at that point looks pretty bleak. Dahlgren, with his relatively small force, is in hostile territory. It's the middle of the night. The weather is ugly. They're pretty much lost, and they just executed the only person in the party who had any familiarity with the local topography. Dahlgren uh, kept his head and weighed the available options. They could try to wander their way back to Union lines, leaving Kilpatrick's party on their own, or they could make camp and try to figure it out in the morning, which increases the risk of being spotted and amounts to abandoning the raid. Or, and this is what Dahlgren decided on, they could try to salvage the mission by circling back around uh, toward the northeast, the idea being that the team would approach Richmond on the north side of the James rather than the south. Uh, Ideally, they'd bump into one of Kilpatrick's scouts, and then the two groups could unite. At first, it almost almost looked like it was going to work out okay. As they approached Richmond, the Union troopers heard the unmistakable sound of rifle and artillery fire. Uh, Determining that Kilpatrick's men uh, must already be engaged in combat, they hurried toward the city as quickly as possible to join the fight. Now, Lieutenant Bartley's account has it that uh, this point is where Colonel Dahlgren really starts to realize that the plan is going haywire. Uh, Bartley says that Dahlgren, quote, knew at once that Kilpatrick had made his attack four hours before the time agreed upon with Dahlgren. This seemed to be something the colonel could not comprehend, and he feared the whole thing would now be a failure, as his own force was too small to uncover in daylight, and he did not think Kilpatrick could possibly gain an entrance through the fortifications before night. End quote. So where we are in the story now, it's about 4 o'clock in the afternoon, uh, and the attack was supposed to have happened after nightfall. And a- as they neared the city, uh, attempting to unite with Kilpatrick, Dahlgren's force was blocked by a group of Confederate Home Guard. The Home Guard was basically groups of militia, or reserves, whose job was to defend local areas. It consisted of men who were too old, or occasionally boys too young, to join the regular army. Men who had been wounded sufficiently to prevent full-time service, but who could still carry a rifle, and a few part-timers exempt from full-time service, such as plantation owners. Now, Dahlgren didn't know this at the time, but as it turns out, uh, Kilpatrick hadn't launched the assault four hours earlier. What had happened is that he had run into the Home Guard also, uh, along with some Confederate regulars, and the rebels had initiated the engagement uh, earlier than the plan called for. Dahlgren's team had stopped off along the way at several local residences, uh, at least one resident, and it may have been Henry Wise, the former Virginia governor, figured out what the Yankee Raiders were up to, outran them to Richmond, and tipped off the town's defenses. As Kilpatrick's larger force got close to the city, uh, approaching from the north, they encountered stiff resistance from awaiting rebels, and so they had pulled back. Uh, Upon realizing that Dahlgren hadn't yet entered the city, Kilpatrick decided to withdraw altogether. Uh, For their part, Kilpatrick's men mostly made it back to Union lines, having failed in their objective of penetrating into Richmond proper, but uh, most of them got back safely. 
Uh, Lieutenant Bartley describes the disheartening effect Kilpatrick's withdrawal had on Dahlgren's party. Quote, Dahlgren reasoned that General Kilpatrick might make a stand near the city and at night renew the attack when he would hear our guns and see our signals. For Captain Glaskowski and myself had arranged a special code of rocket signals so as to communicate at night and bring all the forces together in case of defeat. But Kilpatrick did not make a stand, did not return at night, and never had one rocket sent up to let us know how to get out of this scrape. He made a rather precipitate and, as one of his officers told me in Libby, uh, that's in the POW camp later, demoralized run with Hampton on his rear, end quote. Dahlgren's smaller force was deeper in enemy territory and further from Union lines than Kilpatrick's, and they were now left to fend for themselves against Richmond's alerted defenders and what was quickly becoming a swarm of Confederates. The plan for the raid on Richmond had relied on intelligence reports that Richmond was only lightly defended while the Army of Northern Virginia remained in winter camp miles away. Those reports had been wrong, or at the very least overstated. Now Dahlgren and the 500 men he commanded found themselves in a very precarious position. It's one thing to raid a small town in enemy territory, away from any major population centers, as we saw in the last episode. It's another to raid the enemy capital. After the home guard blocked their path, the attempt to connect with Kilpatrick failed, and Dahlgren concluded that Kilpatrick was already retreating, Dahlgren's men came under constant harassment from rebel pursuers. And it wasn't just home guard on their tail. Confederate cavalry under Wade Hampton were after them too. Dahlgren determined that his only option was to abandon the raid altogether and escape back to Union lines, somehow slip through the net encircling them. The rushed retreat, moving generally east-northeast away from the city, led to confusion, and eventually Dahlgren's group got split up. Exhausted and cold, the Union raiders continued their retreat through the night and into the next day, no longer with any hope of relief from Kilpatrick's larger force. By March 2nd, they had made it to King and Queen County, around 30 miles outside Richmond. Things seemed to quiet down a little, and they started to think that they might make it out alive after all. Then, as Colonel Dahlgren and the around 100 men still with him rode toward a bridge across a small creek, they noticed a handful of horsemen in occupation of the bridge. And we'll return uh, one more time to Lieutenant Bartley for an account of what happened next. Quote, When we came up, Dahlgren took the lead, and with his revolver in hand, rode close up to the men in the road and demanded their surrender. This was answered by a defiant demand on their part for us to surrender. At this, Dahlgren attempted to shoot the officer in charge of the Confederates, but the weapon hung fire. Almost instantly, a volley was fired into our left flank along our line by the enemy who lay in ambush not over 20 feet from the road. This stampeded us for about 100 yards, every horse in our column turning to the rear. When we pulled up, we found that Dahlgren was killed. End quote. So here you have a sad situation that has unfortunately played out many, many times throughout history. Uh, Ulrich Dahlgren, just 21 years old, a uh, talented guy with, uh, with all kinds of potential and, and a bright future seemingly ahead of him. Uh, he gets turned around, mixed up in an operation that went sour, and next thing you know, his life has come to an end. 
around 150 rebel cavaliers and home guard had been lying in wait for the Union raiders. The handful of men on the bridge drew the Federals in close, and the Confederates sprung a close-range ambush. Dahlgren, targeted by numerous shooters due to his position at the front of the group, was hit with five or more rifle shots that proved fatal. Some of the other Union raiders surrendered. Some managed to escape the ambush, but most of those who escaped were captured the following day. Only a handful of Dahlgren's team made it back to Union lines. The rest were either killed during the raid or taken prisoner, joining at Belle Isle the comrades they had been so eager to rescue. Our uh, Lieutenant Bartley concluded his account of the raid by noting, quote, The unfortunate raid cost me and others over five months' close confinement and treatment such as no brutes should receive. End quote. As Dahlgren's lifeless body lay on the ground, it was approached by one of the Confederate ambushers, a 13-year-old boy named William Littlepage. Littlepage, who had joined up with the Confederate Home Guard, searched through Colonel Dahlgren's pockets and effects. The economic situation in and around Richmond was pretty bad by 1864, with the Union blockade and the ethically suspect speculation practices uh, going on in the city, uh, among other things, contributing to shortages of just about anything you might want. So Little Page hoped to find something of value, greenbacks or maybe a pocket watch or something else he could sell to get some money for food for his family. But that's not what the boy found, or at least not the most noteworthy thing he found. Little Page happened upon handwritten papers on Dahlgren's person, which he thought looked important, though Little Page uh, couldn't read well enough to tell for sure. Just in case, he passed the papers along to Edward Halbach, the boy's teacher and also a home guard volunteer. It didn't take Halbach long to decide that the papers were indeed important, and he got them to Lieutenant James Pollard, who had been in command of the ambush. Pollard then took the orders to Richmond for delivery to General Fitzhugh Lee. Or another account has it that the orders were found by Heros von Bork, a Prussian officer serving in the Confederate cavalry, and it was von Bork who then passed them along to Fitzhugh Lee. Uh, but the first version is more compelling and seems to be the, uh, the more common telling, so we'll go with that. Either way, the important thing about the papers uh, found on Dahlgren's corpse isn't so much who found them, but what they said. The orders discussed springing the Union soldiers from Belle Isle, arming them if possible, and then leading them in burning as much of Richmond as could be managed. But it was the last part that really caught everyone's attention. Quote, Once in the city, it, meaning Richmond, must be destroyed, and Jeff Davis and Cabinet killed. End quote. Uh, Fitzhugh Lee was no dummy, and he recognized that, if genuine, the orders Dahlgren had been uh, attempting to carry out were scandalous. It was evidence that Union leaders had handed down orders to take out the opposing administration. A political assassination. Fitzhugh Lee delivered what came to be known as the Dahlgren Papers to President Jefferson Davis personally who was at the time accompanied by Confederate Secretary of State Judah Benjamin. Upon reading through the orders and getting to the part at the end about Jeff Davis and Cabinet killed, uh, Davis is reported to have said, That means you, Mr. Benjamin. 
Now, Benjamin is a, a very interesting figure, definitely worth an episode all his own. He, he has the distinction of being the first Jewish American to serve in the U.S. Senate, uh, representing Louisiana. Um, he also had the opportunity to be the first Jewish Supreme Court justice, but he opted against uh, accepting the nomination, viewing the Senate as the more prestigious position. The Supreme Court uh, wasn't as big of a deal back then. And Benjamin also held, over the course of the war, three different cabinet posts and was among Jefferson Davis's closest confidants. Well, we'll probably do a show on uh, Judah Benjamin at some point, but uh, this is not that show. So after some deliberation, including the, uh, the obvious concerns about the order's authenticity, the Confederate War Department decided to um, leak the Dahlgren papers to the press with uh, Jefferson Davis's approval. Well, uh, leak is probably not actually the uh, right word, since nobody hid the fact that the War Department gave copies of the orders to the newspapers. Now, obviously, the uh, newspaper men recognized that this was a very big scandal, and they published the contents of Dahlgren's orders the very next day, complete with big headlines and rampant speculation. Unsurprisingly, the Dahlgren papers sent a shockwave throughout Richmond. The city's residents weren't pleased to learn that their city had been designated for incineration by the Federal Army. And people all throughout the South, once word spread, were incensed by the assassination directed within the orders. Secretary of War Alexander Seddon, uh, whose name I think I got wrong earlier, uh, publicly advocated for the prisoners taken from Dahlgren's party to be summarily hanged. Robert E. Lee, though, spoke out against that drastic of a response uh, on the grounds that it would provoke Washington to take similar actions against the rebels. And uh, Lee carried the argument. But Lee was powerless to stop the morbid incident that followed. In response to the newspaper stories, an enraged Richmond mob formed up and got its hands on Dahlgren's corpse, intent on defiling it. The standard protocol was that opposing officers' uh, recovered bodies would be sent back to the other side. But in Dahlgren's case, Jefferson Davis exercised a veto, and the mob did the sort of thing that mobs do. Calling him Ulrich the Hun, the crowd put the body on display for public ridicule and defacing, with the wooden leg and at least one digit removed. Someone had... Uh, cut off a finger somewhere along the way to secure an expensive-looking ring. Before long, word of the disrespectful treatment of Dahlgren's remains made it north, and it was Northerners' turn to be outraged. They couldn't fix what had already occurred, but Union agents working in Richmond on behalf of Washington, including a female intelligence asset by the name of Elizabeth Van Loo, were able to covertly gain possession of Dahlgren's remains. According to a New York Times article from 1865, the operation included a uh, payment of a $100 bribe to a black gravedigger who had assisted in identifying uh, Dahlgren's unmarked grave and then in exhuming the body. Uh, accounts of the incident report that the body had been placed in a very shoddily constructed coffin, which fell apart during transport, requiring Dahlgren's corpse to be placed directly into the cart that was used to smuggle it out of town. Following temporary, more respectful accommodations outside Richmond, Dahlgren was properly laid to rest in Philadelphia after the war ended. 
Union leadership was formally notified of the Dahlgren Papers when Robert E. Lee sent copies to General George Meade with a demand for an explanation. Washington predictably denied that the orders were legitimate. There were some alternating accusations and threats of retaliation, but the dispute was ultimately allowed to die down at the diplomatic level when Meade personally pledged to Lee his belief that the orders were inauthentic and, in any event, not sanctioned by the federal command structure. But although the controversy was uh, formally dropped, that didn't stop arguments in the press and certainly hasn't prevented historians from debating and speculating about what's commonly called the Dahlgren Affair. Writing in March 1864, a little over a month after the raid, Harper's Weekly defended the northern position, describing the incident like this, quote, The rebels pretend to have found papers on Colonel Dahlgren's body, directing the massacre of Davis and all the officials in Richmond. But it is denied by federal officers that any such orders were ever issued or suggested. His, meaning Ulrich Dahlgren's, address to his officers and men upon starting on his expedition certainly did not disclose any such bloodthirsty purpose. He enjoined upon them to keep well together and obey orders strictly, to allow no thought of personal gain to lead them off. We will have a desperate fight, he added, as if with the voice of prophecy, but stand up to it when it does come, and all will be well. End quote. The Harper's piece also cited a correspondent um, from the New York Times who claimed to have been with Dahlgren on the day the expedition set off, uh, had seen the orders, and, quote, says positively that they contained no such words as the rebels pretend to have found in them, end quote. Uh, it kind of makes you wonder why Dahlgren was showing orders regarding a, a top-secret raid on the enemy capital to a New York Times reporter, but um, Harper's found the story convincing. The Southern papers, though, were not buying it. The Richmond Examiner was incensed, writing, quote, the depredations of the last Yankee raiders and the wantonness of their devastation equal nothing heretofore committed during the war, end quote. The Richmond Dispatch argued that such despicable Union conduct would, quote, inaugurate a system of bloody retaliations, end quote. And more than one historian has taken the position that, but for the attempt to assassinate Jefferson Davis, real or phony, there would not have been the later successful assassination of President Lincoln, now, it really shouldn't be surprising that contemporary Southern newspapers were convinced uh, the orders were authentic, and Northern papers were confident that they were bogus. But that doesn't really resolve anything, and there are factors supporting both sides of the argument. For one thing, Jefferson Davis seems to have been pretty sure that the orders were genuine. But that only tells us that if they were forged, the top level of the Confederate government didn't know about it. And there were some awfully wily Confederate cavaliers who may have taken the initiative. But what about the manner in which the orders were discovered? William Littlepage was 13 years old and he could barely read, making him a very unlikely person to have concocted a plan to forge Union orders. The Home Guard in general wouldn't have uh, had the kind of knowledge of Union Army protocol necessary to create a convincing forgery. 
However, if you were a clever Confederate cavalry officer setting up a pseudo-false flag assassination plot, a story about a 13-year-old boy fortuitously stumbling upon the orders might seem like a perfect way to reduce suspicions. Or maybe forged orders were planted on Dahlgren's body for Little Page to find. Another thing is that the orders directly refer to Belle Isle. Dahlgren's team never got all that close to Belle Isle. So how would Confederate forgers know to include that part? Well, perhaps one of the captured raiders had loose lips. Or maybe the orders were real, but the final lines about burning Richmond and killing Jefferson Davis had been added in later. Now, the rebels certainly would have had a motive. The orders were helpful in rallying public support for the war against the dastardly Yankees and damaging the reputation of the Lincoln administration in advance of the 1864 election could have been immensely helpful to the Confederate cause. It also didn't take long for the government to send copies of the orders to agents in uh, Europe for propaganda purposes. For his part, Lieutenant Bartley, the Union signalman uh, who accompanied Dahlgren, was convinced that the papers were bogus. He wrote after the war, quote, As to the papers, I don't believe he had any such, as has been claimed by the Confederates. End quote. Admiral John Dahlgren, who was understandably devastated by the news of his son's death, argued publicly for the rest of his life that the orders were absolutely counterfeit. Of course, he had incentive to take that position since he, he didn't want the taint of an assassination attempt attached to his lost son. But he did search for and present evidence that the orders were not genuine. Admiral Dahlgren's principal argument was that the family name had been misspelled in the orders. If Union leaders were writing out assassination orders, they would have known how to spell the name of the number two man leading the operation. However, Jubal Early, in his post-war writings, asserted that the misspelling originated with a lithographer making copies bound for propaganda use in Europe rather than with the original orders. I'm not sure how Early... Uh, determine that, and, and I don't know enough about lithography to say whether Early's contention makes sense, but um, Early, who was a lawyer by trade, seems to have been pretty uh, confident that he had refuted that particular piece of evidence. Now, the question about whether the misspelling arose during the copying process should be easy enough to clear up. All we got to do is look at the original documents, right? The Confederates must have saved the originals because if they didn't, well, that would be suspicious in and of itself. Well, yeah, the rebel government did save the original orders. But shortly after the war, the Confederate archives, which included the Dahlgren papers, were transferred from Richmond to Washington at the direction of the federal government. And while in Washington, the Dahlgren papers were specifically requested for review by a certain Secretary of War by the name of Edwin McMasters Stanton. Stanton asked uh, that the papers be delivered to him personally for his personal perusal. Presumably, Stanton wanted to give them a once-over. You know, try to get to the bottom of the situation and determine once and for all whether there was any chance that these illicit orders were genuine. Strangely, though, once in Stanton's possession, the Dahlgren papers went missing. 
And the original documents have since been lost to history. What a pity, right, Secretary Stanton? Now, wait a minute, though. You can say a lot of things about Edwin Stanton, but this was, this was absolutely not a dude who would borrow original papers of obvious historic significance from government archives and then just carelessly misplace them. Stanton was a, a detail-oriented guy, which suggests that if the original Dahlgren papers were lost or destroyed while in the custody of Edwin Stanton— it was most likely because Edwin Stanton wanted those papers to be lost or destroyed. Now, there have been plenty of historians who concluded that the Dahlgren papers were phony. Author uh, Dwayne Schultz's book, The Dahlgren Affair, Terror and Conspiracy in the Civil War, uh, for instance, concludes that the papers were forged as a justification for the rebels to up the ante and abandon the more genteel rules of engagement uh, observed in the earlier years of the war. It's by no means a settled question among historians and civil war buffs, and you can, in good faith, come down on either side. But with that said, if the papers were genuine, Edwin Stanton seems to be the likely originator. Uh, orders for something like an assassination attempt would have uh, had to come, come from up high. And you'll recall the raid itself was approved at the highest levels by Lincoln and Stanton, with Alfred Pleasanton and George Meade basically circumvented in the process. An assassination of the opposing president would have been, uh, frankly, out of character for Lincoln. He saw the raid as a good opportunity to spread word of the generous amnesty terms he was offering. So um, also assassinating the rebel leader along the way is probably counterproductive. And it, it seems unlikely that Ulrich Dahlgren, as a 21-year-old colonel recruited into a mission that was already being planned, would have unilaterally come up with his, his own plot to assassinate Jefferson Davis along the way. Uh, Kilpatrick maybe is a possibility, but, but his open political ambitions would not have been aided by involvement with the assassination of a civilian politician. Remember, he was looking at this raid as, as a way to get good press for a future political career. And uh, being involved in assassination plots, whether they're successful or not, usually isn't a good political move. And, and you also think that he wouldn't risk losing favor with the administration by implicating them in a scandal without higher approval. Which brings us back to Stanton. He had a reputation for being cutthroat. And he had direct links to both Kilpatrick and Dahlgren. Lieutenant Bartley described Stanton as, quote, a personal friend of Colonel Dahlgren. And, and you kind of see Stanton, uh, as Secretary of War, taking the position that what the president doesn't know won't hurt him. For what it's worth, the Smithsonian Channel recently did an episode on the Dahlgren affair as part of its America's Hidden Stories series. I confess that I didn't watch it, but my understanding is that the program ultimately concluded, based in part on a handwriting analysis, that the orders were genuine and had been issued by Edwin Stanton. Uh, we'll let historian Stephen Sears have the final word on the Dahlgren papers are real side of the debate. Um, writing in 2001, Sears concluded, quote, 
the idea of liberating the maddened prisoners and exhorting them to carry out the death sentences and the pillaging was a masterstroke of rationalization and perfectly in character for the Secretary of War. For a brief epilogue, the Dahlgren affair and the failed raid on Richmond initially appeared to be a disaster for Judson Kilpatrick. He was criticized for abandoning Dahlgren, and he also lost favor with the administration for launching the plan that led to an ugly diplomatic incident. Now, he wasn't exactly punished, but he was banished from the Eastern Theater and sent out west to serve under General Sherman. Not long after joining Sherman, Kilpatrick suffered a pretty bad wound that took him out of action for several months. Now, treating doctors told him that he wasn't going to be fit to fight any longer, but Kilpatrick doggedly rejoined Sherman, and the cavalry he commanded was instrumental in making Georgia howl, to use Sherman's words. Kilpatrick's service under Sherman uh, late in the war partially redeemed his name, but the Dahlgren affair had already done too much damage for the big political ambitions that he had fostered early on. Kilpatrick was named ambassador to Chile, or Chile, which is certainly an honor, but his career as an elected official never took off. Okay, that's going to do it for our take on the Dahlgren affair. We got a couple good topics we're kicking around for the next show, so be sure to tune in. It should be something fun. Thanks as always for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the show. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.